Matthew 21, if you got your Bibles this weekend, and I hope that you do, happy Memorial Day weekend. Let me just say that uh, on this weekend here, we do want to recognize those men and women who have fallen in service protecting our nation. We know that their sacrifice gives us the freedoms, many of the freedoms that we enjoy today, including our ability to gather right here together without fear of reprisal. And so on this day, this weekend, we honor them and we salute them. In fact, Summit Church, would you put your hands together as a sign of your gratitude for these men and women? Well, this is the last week of our series on the parables of Jesus called Listen. So I think it is very appropriate, Matthew 21, verse 33, that this last parable we are going to look at opens with Jesus saying, listen, listen to another parable. What we've learned in this series is that Jesus sometimes spoke in parables so that those who were not really listening, at least from their heart, would miss the meaning of his words. Listening, we've learned throughout this series, is a critical life skill. My wife sometimes complains to me that I don't listen to her. The other day we were riding around in the car and all of a sudden I, I, I felt her touch my arm and she said, are you paying attention? Um, I just don't really feel like you're listening. And I thought, well, that's a weird way to start a conversation. Uh, so yes, sometimes uh, husbands and wives don't listen to each other. Uh, early on in my ministry here, I was uh, asked by somebody in our congregation if I would do their wedding. And um, I knew them and I said, I'd be, I would be happy to do it. So um, they told me it was going to be in Mooresville. Um, well, well, Mooresville, I thought Mooresville is just right over here, you know. So um, about that afternoon, about five o'clock in the afternoon, I got in my car and punched in the, you know, <laughs> um, wedding, you know, place coordinates to go to the rehearsal. And it said Mooresville is three hours and 40 minutes um, because it's Mooresville, not Morrisville, which Mooresville is about 10 minutes. Mooresville is about three plus hours from here. So I called the groom up and I'm like, I'm going to be a little bit late for the rehearsal. He said, how late? I said, about three hours and 15 minutes late. I'll be there about 1130. Uh, listening is a very critical life skill that you got to learn. Um, and if you don't listen with um, the right ears, you don't have ears to hear, then you miss a lot of what is, is happening. And that's what's going on in these parables. So Jesus would often open his parables, like he does this one, with an admonition for us to listen. Because only those who were really listening, only those with the right posture, right disposition of heart, we have said, could perceive what he was saying. The parable that we're going to look at today, however, is an exception because Matthew tells us that everybody, including Jesus's enemies, who obviously didn't have the right disposition of heart, everybody understood exactly what he meant by this parable. In this parable, he offers an uncomfortably accurate analysis of the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders and a prediction above what they were about to do to him. Personally, by the way, I love these little uh, beneath the surface looks to the human heart that Jesus will sometimes give because it helps me understand what is going on in my own heart when I wrestle with the claims of Jesus and also helps me understand what's going on, the spiritual battle that's happening in the hearts of people who are listening to me as, as I preach. Um, so this is a beneath the surface look at, at the human heart. Here's the context. Jesus tells this parable, Matthew 21, shortly after he had cleared the temple square with a whip, presumably now he's standing in that same temple square. Everybody, particularly the the religious leaders is a little on edge because they see Jesus as a clear threat, a clear threat to the establishment. And so Jesus begins this parable in that context. Verse 33, there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, but if put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and he went away. Now the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 5, had famously compared God's creation of Israel
Israel to a landowner who planted a vineyard and left it under the stewardship of some workers to harvest. But according to Isaiah, when the time came for the harvest, the fruit was sour, so the landowner destroyed the vineyard. Everybody that was listening to Jesus on this day would have been familiar with that story, in fact, quite well. And they understood that story as a condemnation of Israel, listen, at the time of Isaiah, and an explanation for why God had sent Israel into exile. But when Jesus tells this very familiar story, he's going to add a little twist. Let me walk you through it. Verse 34, when the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the tenants to to collect his fruit. The tenants took his servants, they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. They did the same to him. Finally, finally, he said, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Uh, he said. Now, let me just add here, if you're kind of thinking through this, if you were listening to the parable, you'd have to ask, well, if they killed the first servants, why would the owner, why would the owner then choose to send in his son? I mean, if I were a principal at a high school and I was having lunch with my wife in my office and I got word that, um, that one of the classrooms had gotten unruly and beat up the substitute teacher that was there. And so I sent a vice principal down to check it out and they beat her up. And then I sent a security guard down to check out the situation and they beat the security guard up. I'm not going to look at my wife and say, hey, sweetheart, would you mind walking down and checking out what's going on in that classroom? Well, of course not. I mean, my wife could probably handle it because she's strong and she's pretty feisty, but um, uh, you still wouldn't do that. Why would the owner, after they'd killed three or beat up three of the people that he sent to them, why would he send in the most precious person in the world to him into a situation that he knows is extremely dangerous? That's a great question with a very important answer that we'll come back to toward the end. Verse 38, but when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come on now, let's kill him. And then we'll take the inheritance for ourselves, which by the way, is just to show you the insanity of sin. This guy is clearly wealthy enough to own multiple properties and hire servants to tend them. So you figure if he's wealthy enough to own multiple properties and hire servants, then he's probably wealthy enough to also hire a security force to deal with, 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 with one if it had been stolen. But such is the insanity of sin, and that's what these tenant farmers think. Verse 39, so they seized him, the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Therefore, when the owner of that vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He answers his question. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, the people listening told him, and they will lease his vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, well, then have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful, marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls in this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. This is a quote, by the way, from Psalm 118, which was one of the five Psalms of the Hallel that was sung throughout Passover by pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem, which meant that that was going on all around Jesus and people were singing the song. It was familiar. People may have been singing it while he was up there teaching. Well, Jesus takes one of the key themes, the key phrases, of that psalm. And he says, this is about me. I'm the one that everybody's singing about. I'm the stone that is about to be rejected by you builders. I'm going to be rejected by you religious leaders, but I'm going to become the primary cornerstone of a new building. Or if you don't understand the building metaphor or know what a cornerstone is, think of it as like him saying, I'm the player who got cut from the team that becomes the star of a brand new team that ultimately wins the championship. 
verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, this parable and the couple before it, they knew, they knew that he was speaking about them. It was common knowledge that Israel had a long legacy of abusing the prophets. Israel's own history tells that story. Every Jewish boy at the time um, had grew up learning, for example, that the prophet Jeremiah had been beaten up on multiple occasions, thrown into a pit, and then stoned. Uh, the prophets Elijah and Amos were banished and forced to hide in caves. Um, uh, Ezekiel was murdered after a sermon that he preached. Habakkuk and Zechariah were both stoned by the Jews living in Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah got chased into the temple and stoned right near the altar. Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, was put into a log um, and cut in half by one of the um, Israel's kings. Uh, so they knew the stories of these prophets that had been, been beaten and murdered and killed. But here was, the, here was the twist. Here was the thing. They thought that that was something in their past. They thought that it was something that would never occur in their day. They were too righteous. They were too advanced. They were too morally upright for that to ever occur by them in their generation. The irony, of course, was that they were about to do something even worse than any of their fathers had ever done. And there's an important lesson, let me um, add here, in there for us. We probably shouldn't look so quickly with disdain on the sins of people in past history and assume that the reason that they did those hideous things was that they were so backwards and sinful, and we, by contrast, are so advanced and enlightened. You see, the Bible teaches that we're made out of the same sinful stuff that they are. We got the same fallen heart, which means, given the same circumstances and pressures, we would likely have acted the same way that they did. When we hear about past generations of Christians, for example, enslaving or exploiting or abusing others, don't shake your head in self-righteous disgust and say, what was wrong with them? Instead, you ought to say, what is wrong with the human heart? What's wrong with my heart? Stories of human depravity should not make us feel proud and smug. Stories of human depravity ought to make us feel humble and repentant because it's the same heart in us that was in them. We are a race that has routinely scorned and ignored the prophets and routinely uses whatever positions of power it obtains to privilege itself, even if it means exploiting others. This all comes to a head in the crucifixion where we see in the crucifixion clearly displayed man's heart toward God. When God was fully revealed in Jesus, we hated him and we killed him. And that wasn't just a problem for people in that generation. Several weeks ago when we were going through the, the stories leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, I showed you that Jesus looks like he's on trial, but it's actually the whole human race that's on trial. God has given us a picture of, of our attitude to the authority and the glory of God. Well, see, that's what the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't get. They assumed that all their advances in religion somehow indicated that they had a different kind of heart, that they were just better people. You see, that's one of the dangers of religion. Religion can keep you blind to the depravity of your heart. You see, a lot of times when people grow up outside the church, um, apart from the constraints of religion, they see the full sinful capabilities of their hearts put on display. And so when they, when they, when they, when they get saved, they really repent. And they say, God, I've seen how bad I can get. I've seen how messed up I am. I need you to save me. And when those people stand in church and uh, we start singing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Man, they sing that with enthusiasm and sincerity because they've experienced firsthand how much of a wretch they actually can be. But see, we who grew up in the church, we learn to curb our behavior to a point that we can stay blind to the sinful potential of our hearts, a wickedness that is every bit as present in people who grew up outside the church. Here's how I see it. 
I've used this analogy here at this church over the years, but my first year out of high school, I spent um, uh, that first year at a small Bible um, college right beside a big, huge lake in the Adirondack Mountains of upstate New York. It was a fantastic year. It was a life-shaping year, but the living conditions um, at this particular uh, small college were, shall we say, rustic. And uh, the water that came out of the faucets in the dorm that was right beside the lake always tasted like fish. Uh, just you could not get the fish taste out. So my roommate knife um, figured uh, we had this country time lemonade powder that if you put enough country time lemonade powder into the water, get it to about the consistency of maple syrup, uh, then you could no longer taste the fish taste that was in there. Now, had we actually removed the fish taste? Of course not. All we'd done is covered it up. Whatever it was in that water, giving it the fish taste was still there. Uh, the only way to get that out would be, to, I guess, to either not take the water out of the lake or to catch all the fish in it. But all we did was cover it up. And that's what religion does. It's like the perfume that goes on top of the messed up heart that just keeps you from recognizing the stench in your heart. Listen, your and my heart is essentially the same as that which was in generations of the past. That's true regardless of what color you are. It's true regardless of what religion you practice, how good the home you grew up, was in, uh, grew up in was, or what political affiliation you line up with. Your heart outside of Christ is fundamentally the same as that of those who exploited and abused others, who killed the prophets, and who crucified Jesus. The only difference between us and them are forces and graces outside of our car control that have curbed or contained our simple tendencies. So the point is, don't look back self-righteously at them and say, what was wrong with those people? Instead, the, the, the abuses of the past ought to make you look inward and say, what's wrong with me? Keep a posture of humility about your own heart and ask God to reveal in you whatever rebellious or exploitive tendencies that there are. So what I want to do then is focus for the next few minutes in light of that on the analysis of the human heart that Jesus provides in this parable, because it's as true for us in this generation as it was for the first hearers there in, in Jesus's generation. I'm going to give you four points here. Number one, what we see in this analysis of the human heart is that some unbelief is willful. The tenants in this parable didn't murder the son because they were confused about who he was. They didn't think he was an imposter coming in. They, they hated him, verse 38, because he challenged their ownership of the field. By this point in Jesus's life, the religious leaders had convinced themselves that Jesus was dangerous and that he needed to be killed. But in telling this story, Jesus pulls back the veil in their hearts and shows us that theirs was a willful rejection. It was, a, if you could say, willful confusion. I mean, they, they thought that Jesus was a fake, but what he's saying is deep down, there's actually something willful and intentional going on. In the book of Romans, Paul describes this. Uh, he says that a great deal of our behavior can only be explained in terms of a deep dynamic of, 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 uh, of emotional and spiritual repression. And that underneath everything else, the thing that we really repress is a hatred of God himself. Romans 8, 7 says that our sinful heart has an inward hostility toward God. Romans 8, 7, the mind governed by the flesh. And all that means is the natural heart, the, the human heart without Christ is hostile to God, right? I mean, everybody touch your chest for a minute. That, that heart that's in there, that spiritual heart is naturally hostile, not ambivalent, not a lover of God, not a good person that's confused. It's hostile. Your natural heart is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so even if it decided that it wanted to. I mean, think for a minute about what that means. Our natural heart cannot submit to God. Your natural heart possesses a deep hostility to the authority and the glory of God. Your heart, your heart possesses that. 
Repentance begins by recognizing that and looking to God to change it. By the way, this is how you know that the Holy Spirit is beginning to open your eyes. Because it takes the Holy Spirit to see that sin is not just a violation of the rules. Sin is an entire attitude of resentment that you have toward Christ's authority and his claim over your life. The sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you is that your sin, listen to this, starts to feel personal between you and God. It's not just a feeling of shame that you haven't kept the rules good enough or that you're a worse person than everybody else. You know the Holy Spirit is working in you when it starts to feel personal, like I have resisted Jesus and his authority and his claim for um, being deserved the glory in my life. What all this means is that for many people, their unbelief is not because of a lack of evidence in the head. Their unbelief comes from a heart problem. I heard this the other day, I think exemplified in um, uh, Richard Dawkins, who's the famous uh, atheist, British atheist, who wrote the book, God Delusion. Um, he was asked this question. They were like, is there anything that God could do now to get you to believe in him? Right? Now, he prides himself on being open-minded, right? His answer to this question was no. Even if God showed up in the room, I would want to know what sort of psychological or naturalistic explanation was going on here. You see, what's happened is his atheism has now gone to anti-theism, which is a refusal to consider the evidence that ultimately springs from a hatred of God. He doesn't want it to be true. Algius Huxley, who was a, a philosopher who coined the, the term agnostic about 75 years ago, um, wrote a, a, a very famous book called Brave New World. He said this in um, one of his journals. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, other atheists and agnostics, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality of Christianity, the sexual morality of Christianity, because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was only one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves to be able to do what we wanted, and that was agnosticism. What I'm trying to get you to see is that sometimes there are heart things that are behind unbelief. Hard things. I remember hearing a story one time about a high school girl in a class where um, her class was given the assignment to take on some historical figure that had occurred in an unusual period of history and to explore that and, and tell that story. So this girl chose Jonah and did a great presentation on the history of Nineveh and the social dynamics that were, were, were between Nineveh and the people of Israel and got up and presented it. Well, after all the presentations were done, the uh, cynical teacher gets up there and commends all the different presentations, but then begins to launch a tirade about being able to separate truth from fantasy and being able to, you know, not choose mythical figures to write historical papers on and just goes on and finally this girl comes up and says, were well, you talking about me there? Because he'd given her a C minus on what was an excellent presentation. He said, well, absolutely I was. Uh, he says, everybody knows that the stories in the Old Testament are just myths with no basis in reality. There was no such persons as Moses or King David or certainly no Jonah. But the girl said, well, but, but all these figures have the same historical documentation as other figures. And the teacher said, listen, any educated person dismisses any supernatural explanations for any historical event just prima facie, just, just uh, from the beginning. We're just going to get rid of that. Um, and, and then he said, he said, these stories don't even make sense. I mean, how could Moses possibly have led the children of Israel through the Red Sea? How could Jonah have survived in the belly of a fish for three days? And the girl said, well, I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'll, I'll ask Jonah. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah is not in heaven? And the girl said, well, then you can ask him if he's not in heaven. Um, there's a willfulness sometimes to 
Um, to, 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 to things that we say are objective, there's a sense in which I'm just not even going to consider that because I don't like the implications of if it were true. All throughout his ministry, Jesus explains that if you've got the right posture of heart, if you really want to know, if you've got ears to hear, if you desire to know God truly, then the truth about him will be evident to see. By the way, before I move on to our second point here, you've got to note that this rejection of Jesus can also take a religious form, not just an atheistic form. I mean, after all, the, the, the tenets... Um, that we're, we're learning about first represent the chief priests, not atheists. This might be one of the most important things to, to learn, especially if you're a church-going person. The number one substitute, the number one substitute for true surrender is religious activity. In fact, sometimes the least surrendered people who know God the least are the most busy in religion because religion can be a very effective way of avoiding the authority of God in your life. If you don't want to surrender to God everything, you can come up with a, a scheme to be busy that you think will keep God at bay. In her, her novel, Wise Blood, the, the Southern novelist Flannery O'Connor talks about one of the characters she describes as being someone who avoided sin. Listen to this. He avoided sin so that he could avoid Jesus. In other words, as long as his life never got desperate, as long as his life never got messed up by really bad, sinful choices, as long as he never felt ashamed, well, then he never had to reckon with who Jesus was, how much he needed his grace, and the claims that Jesus made on his life. You see, sometimes religious activity is a way of, of keeping God at bay because you don't have to deal with real surrender because you don't feel desperate for God and his grace in your life. For a lot of people, it's like the goal of their religion is to keep Jesus in, in time out. Uh, you parents know how, you know, when your kid gets naughty or noisy or just annoying, you want to put them in time out and they go stand in the, I'll just say the corner and they're over there in time out. And that's where people want to keep Jesus. It's like, he's there when we need him. We don't want him all you know, away. We want him in our lives. But um, our goal is to keep him kind of out of our lives and not interfering with what we're doing. Uh, so, you know, when you sin and you do something wrong, then all of a sudden Jesus gets the freedom to come out of time out. And Jesus is over there, you know, he's over in the corner and all of a sudden there's, uh, there's a, uh, you know, Santa, he comes out and he's like, ha, ah, I got you now. I got something against you. You really messed up. And so you do whatever religious thing you got to do. You, uh, you know, say your Hail Marys or cross yourself or go to church, tithe, read your Bible. And you're like, ha, I've done enough. Back in time out. And Jesus is like, oh, back in time out. And he goes over there back in time out and waits on you to come get him. Um, that's not repentance. It's not a, a relationship with God. That's an attempt to avoid God. I'm doing just enough to keep God and his claims away from my life. I don't really want to surrender. I just want to do enough to, to make sure that I I stay, I stay away from the judgment of God. That's what these religious leaders Jesus was showing them. It's like you've used religion to avoid God's rightful claim on your life, that he is the one with all authority and he's the one that deserves all glory, which leads me to number two, which is similar to the first one. Most rejection, most rejection is rooted in a desire for control. Uh, some unbelief we just learned is, uh, is willful and most rejection is rooted in a desire for control. The servants had been hired by the owner but by verse 38, they're now acting as if the vineyard belongs to them. Everything in us, in the human heart, wants to pretend like we're the owner, not the tenant. The world constantly reinforces to us that we're the owner. This is your life. You got to make the most of it. You got to enjoy it. You got to get your bucket list and do everything on it. You're the owner. A lot of sin goes back to that question. Who owns your life? Is your life yours, out of which you share some with Jesus? Or is it his, which he is allowing you to enjoy? For many people, I've told you that Jesus is like the GPS system in their car. You decide you want a happy life and you know God has got something to do with the happiness in your life. So, and you keep it there and you keep it turned on and it helps you know which way to go. But you know, with the GPS system, you've always got the option to disobey the directions. 
And so the GPS system tells you to turn and you choose not to turn because that route doesn't look good to you. And you figure like the GPS system, God will patiently kind of recalculating and he'll come up with a new route for you. And by the way, I know a guy who told his wife that the GPS directional lady he thought was the ideal wife and he wanted to know why his wife couldn't be more like her, that when he made a decision she didn't like, she should just recalculate And that conversation did not go well and I would not commend that to you. But many of us have that relationship to God where we're like, well, God, I just expect you to be there to tell me when I ask a question and I expect you to adjust when I don't because I'm the owner of this car and you're there the, 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 the one to, to give suggestions and make things work out. God is the owner of your life. He is not the navigation system for it. And a lot of our rejection of Jesus comes out of the sense that I'm the owner and he's the help rather than, than it's his and um, I am his servant that is just receiving this on loan from him for a while. Number three, number three, what we see is that God's grace toward us is amazing. God's grace toward us is amazing, but it won't last forever. God shows his grace toward us in this story in repeated ways. I mean, first, there's the fact that he gives the vineyard to us to enjoy to begin with. Life and all the pleasures that go with it are just, uh, are just a great gift that God gives us that he wants us to be happy with and he wants us to enjoy. He shows his mercy to us through allowing us to enjoy the vineyard. Second, through the repeated patient warnings, he sends the rebellious farmers, he shows his mercy. In this story, he doesn't just send them one messenger, one chance to repent. He sends them chance after chance after chance when it seems like they've demonstrated they don't need any more chances. Same is true for you and me. He sends us repeated warnings. For some of you, it's happening right now. It's this weekend. You're here and God has been trying to get a hold of your life. And this message is just one other thing where God's saying, wake up, wake up, pay attention. Now, sometimes it's more of a natural messenger that comes. The process of aging. Aging is depressing, I can tell you firsthand. But in one sense, aging is God's gracious reminder that I don't last forever and that everything that I have is borrowed from God, that I'm a tenant and I'm not the owner. Uh, my daughter is in middle school and uh, they had a, their end of year middle school soccer picnic. And so they had a, a pickup game between the um, girls' middle school soccer team and the parents. That doesn't sound that difficult, right? I'm going to go out and play soccer with a bunch of middle school girls. They about killed me. Um, I, I have parts of my body. This is two weeks later. I got parts of my body that I'm still, I'm like, I didn't even know that part was still attached, but it hurts. It's sore. Uh, it's, one of them was on, my, on um, part of my foot. I'm still, if you see me walking up here, I'm still limping slightly, and it's from a middle school soccer game. Um, uh, I, I get sore. Sometimes I wake up in the morning, and I'm sore, and I'm like, all I did the night before was sleep. Like somehow, you know, going from this position to that position in bed um, is enough to make me sore for two or three days. It's just, these things are all messengers that life just goes quickly, and I'm not the owner. I can't even hold on to the health and the body that I have. It's all borrowed, and ultimately, it's all got to be turned back in. The fragility of life as a messenger that we're not the owner. Maybe you've seen something you thought was secure get, get taken away. I, I remember reading um, a couple of years ago about a, um, uh, just one of the most successful Civil War generals. I can't remember if it was for the South or North, but um, won all these incredible battles against ridiculous odds um, and then died uh, right toward the last year of the war because of a tick bite. And I thought, so here you've got a guy who could face down armies and overcome them, and a little tick that you could squash under your foot ultimately is what killed him. It's a messenger that you're just a tenant, not really the owner. Um, C.S. Lewis said that unfulfilled longings are a sign to you from God that you're a tenant, not the owner. He said, in every pleasure, the longing for the pleasure was better than the actual obtaining of it. 
You ever experienced that where the, the pursuit of that pleasure is actually more enjoyable than when you obtain the thing you were looking for the whole, the whole time? I always tell people that there are only four things in my life that have fully lived up to expectations, just four. Uh, number one, becoming a Christian. Number two, um, getting married and having kids, okay? Uh, number three was going to the, uh, the island of Kauai in Hawaii, one of the only places I've ever been that fully lived up to expectations. And then number four was skydiving. Those are the only, everything else in my life is disappointed. Everything. Um, everything else, the, 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 the search for it was not as good as the obtaining of it. Um, that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about. He says, he says, I spent my life chasing after academic success and money, and I've spent my life chasing all kinds of things. And he, here's the way he described it. He said, it's like the scent of a flower was in my, my, my mind that I've never been able to find on earth. I, I, I've, I've smelled the smell, but I can't find the flower. He said, it was the echo of a, of a tune that my soul longed to hear. I hear the echo of the tune, but I, I can't find the original on earth. And he concluded by saying, if I find in myself desires, which nothing in this world will satisfy, the only explanation is that I was created for another world. Unfulfilled longings are a messenger that you're not the master, you're not the owner, you're just a tenant. Again, some of you are in church today and, and God has been after you and this is another warning that God has given to you. Life is a messenger constantly coming at you saying, you're not in charge, you're not the owner, you're just a tenant. So God shows his mercy by letting you tend the vineyard to enjoy it. He shows his mercy by sending repeated warnings. The ultimate way of showing mercy, of course, was by sending his son. Like I said, we, we got to stand a little dumbfounded by the mercy of God that was shown to these farmers, right? After they'd killed the other messengers, he would send his son. Why would anyone do that? Would anybody else, would you, any of you, ever show that kind of mercy in that situation? And by the way, if you'll let me just um, digress for just a second, sometimes we complain about the harshness of God's judgment, and we think, well, if I were God, I'd have set it up different, and I'd have been a lot more merciful than him, but any time in Scripture, listen to this, any time in Scripture when God's disposition to mercy is contrasted to a man's disposition to mercy, God always wins by a long shot. Think about it. Is this how you would have reacted to a group of tenants who stole your vineyard? Now, we're almost scandalized by this story. And the story of Hosea, where God tells Hosea to go out and first marry a prostitute, make the prostitute his wife, then love her, and then after she leaves him and goes out and sleeps with a bunch of other men and resells herself back into slavery, God tells Hosea, go back again and buy her back and love her and love her even though she's been unfaithful to you. And when you're reading this book, you're like, that's not even fair, God. I mean, why would you do that to somebody who had humiliated you and scorned you? And God's answer to Hosea is, because that's how I love you. And that's how I love Israel. And you don't understand the scandal of it. I, Jonah, Nineveh. You know, Nineveh, the, the people of Nineveh had abused and enslaved and killed and tortured Israelite people. And God said, Jonah, go preach mercy to them. And Jonah says, I can't, I don't want to. I don't want him to get saved. And you understand when you see the history, you're like, I get it. I wouldn't want to go preach to those people either. And God says, do it because that's essentially what I'm doing with you. I'm extending mercy to people that have done nothing but hated me and scorned me in return. You see, the only reason that we think that we're more merciful than God is we have no idea the depth of the evil of what we've done. And that's why we think we're more merciful than God. But when you really see the extent of the evil, then what will amaze you is not the harshness of God's judgment, but the magnanimity of his mercy. God's mercy that gets revealed in stories like this is staggering, scandalous. God sent his son knowing full well what we were going to do to him. Why? 
Why? Well, Scripture says first that he was demonstrating his love for us. Romans 5, 8. He was through Christ putting on display his love in a way that we could never doubt and should never forget. We see that he was willing to make himself vulnerable and put himself in harm's way for no other reason, for no vested interest than to rescue us. Second thing is he was enabling us to trust him by showing us his willingness to identify with us. He had no personal vested interest in becoming one of us other than just to lead us to safety. I love my, my friend Joby Martin's illustration here. He's preached here at a church and we'll hear again in a few months. Uh, he tells a story. He says, when I was a kid, the vacant lot next to my house was uh, filled with little ant piles of carpenter ants. He said, well, the kid next to me, he said he had one of those big wheels he loved. You remember big wheels? You know, it was like a, a death machine because it was so low that cars couldn't see you and had the wheel big enough that you couldn't see them. So it's just set up for imminent destruction. He said, well, this kid, he said, would go out and he would take uh, like Smucker's jelly and he would smear it all over part of the ground there on this vacant lot so that the ants would, you know, come out to see what was going on and be excited about the jelly. He says, I don't know how they, you know, had their network of communication. They'd put it on Facebook like, hey, jelly, you know, free jelly over at the vacant lot. He says, well, in about 10 to 15 minutes, the whole place would be filled with just all the ants you could see, just like a carpet of ants. He said at that point, he would hop on his big wheel and he would go tearing into the middle and he would power slide and just send all these carcasses of these little ants flying everywhere. He said, now, he says, as a kid watching this, I figured that if I loved ants and I was really sad about what was happening to them and I wanted to keep this from happening and I wanted to communicate with them, he says, what would I do? He says, you know, if I went over to them and stood over top of them, their anthills and said, behold, ye ants, hear ye, hear ye. Thou shalt not eat the jelly because it will lead to thy death. Said so they wouldn't pay any attention. They would just look at the, I would say, look at the size of that guy's boot. And they would, be, they would run back in the ground in, in fear. He said, but if I, if I were just an ant, I wouldn't have the perspective to understand that psycho big wheel kid is on his way with, with the jelly of death. He said, so I would need to simultaneously be big enough to have the right perspective, powerful enough to understand what's happening, and yet small enough like an ant, to be able to communicate with other ants. I'd have to grow up like an ant, speak ant language, and still have the right perspective. He says, and then one day, if I did that, if I loved them at just the right time, I would enter the colony and I would say, behold, ants, follow me. I know the jelly tastes good, but look around. Look at all the carcasses and squished body parts of your fellow ant brethren. That's going to be you one day. Follow me across the street where there's no psycho big wheel kid because his mom won't let him cross the street. And so nothing but safety over there. And then says, he says, that's what the coming of Jesus was like. Sort of, <laughs> sort of. You say, well, that's a ridiculous comparison. Yeah, but honestly, is that any more scandalous or ridiculous than what God actually did? So in becoming a man, he demonstrated his love for us. He identified with us. He got himself in a place where we could see his vulnerability and be in relationship with him and we could trust him. And then his death, thirdly, became the means by which he saved us. I mean, this is the irony of the gospel is that our murder of him became the means of our forgiveness because our murder of him had him die for our sin and that satisfied the penalty that was due on our sin in our place. You see, there's only two ways to pay for sin. One of them is you can pay for it eternally or secondly, he, the righteous, can suffer in your place. His death also released in us the power that would change us. Again, the irony of the gospel the murder that came from the hatred we had toward God became the means by which God destroyed the hatred in our hearts. His willingness to serve us and to suffer for us breaks the stronghold 
that self-centeredness and self-will have on our hearts? How do you get the new heart that they needed? How do you get the new heart that doesn't hate and kill the prophets? That only comes, Jesus says, by being in right relationship to me. Look at what he says next. What he says next in verse 42. The stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it's wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. In the last verse, whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, that it will shatter him. So what it's showing you is that his grace is amazing. It has the power to transform you, but it's a grace that won't last forever. You choose whether to let his death compel you to repent and to build your life on him and to have him change your heart or you ignore him and that stone will crush you. God in his mercy has sent you messenger after messenger after messenger to remind you you're not the owners. And finally, he sent to you his son, Jesus, who came and lived the perfect life and showed authority and mastery over all of the things that scared us, death, disease, the weather, um, demons. He conquered all of it and he showed you that he was doing it so that he could rescue you. It's amazing. But in this parable, he shows you it won't last forever. The parable's question Jesus is asking them and us is, if you won't listen to the Son, then who would you listen to? Who would you listen to and what hope is there for you? God will not force himself on you. And if you won't listen to the revelation of himself in Jesus, then who would you listen to? Number four, last one. Finally, don't flatter yourself that God couldn't get along without you. That's what he's telling them. In that last statement, Jesus told the Jewish leaders something that they absolutely did not believe. Verse 43, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And they thought, no way. Man, since Abraham, we've been God's people. What other faithful group does God have? Who's got the history we have? God can never turn away from us. In another place, they told themselves, God will never destroy us because we're the sons of Abraham and we're his only people. Jesus responded by saying, listen, God can raise up new children of Abraham from these stones if he wanted to. Sure enough, that's what happened. 70 AD, just 30 or 40 years after Jesus is teaching this, the Roman ruler Titus Vespasian massacred the citizens of Jerusalem, tore down the temple so that not one stone was left on top of another, and murdered and destroyed 985 villages in Israel. Wiped out almost the entire country. Spiritual leadership passed to Jesus' apostles away from the religious leaders. Apostles who'd been completely disconnected from the religious establishment and who had spent the majority of their ministries taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul gives the same warning to us. He said, just because God took it from them and gave it to you, doesn't mean it's going to belong to you forever. To Gentile Christians, he says, don't take your place for granted. Romans 11, verse 20, the branch of Israel was broken off because of unbelief. And you, you Gentiles, us, Summit Church, we now stand in their place by faith. Don't be arrogant, though, but tremble. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, why would you think he would spare you either? If you didn't listen and you didn't repent, you didn't believe, we would not be the first people in history that God had discarded and then started over with somebody new. The question is, are we walking in a way that is worthy of the grace we've received? That's how Paul frequently admonished his churches. I urge you, therefore, he tells the Ephesians, walk worthy of the calling which you have been called in Jesus. Are you walking in a way that is a proper response to the grace of God? Let me just think through the different areas of your life. Do you worship in a way that is a proper response? Do you worship with the enthusiasm that should come from somebody that has, whose soul had been purchased by the blood of the only Son of God? 
Does how you worship put his worth on display? Does God look at you and say, that's why I died right there? Because their response, the way they worship, is what I was going for when I came to redeem them from sin. It's how you give. This is how you give. Is it a worthy response to who Jesus is and what he's done? Is it a worthy response to the preciousness of the gospel that you have that you want to see other people have? Is your attitude towards sin and holiness? Do you fight sin with the fervor that should come from somebody that knows the great price that was paid in order to purchase their soul? You see, if God took the gospel away from Israel and he gave it to others because they didn't respond in a way that was worthy of it, and he could certainly do that to our church. It means that if we did, we're not good stewards of the gospel and reaching our neighbors and raising up our children to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then why would we think that we could always just in perpetuity enjoy the blessings that God has put upon us? God says, well, if you're not going to be a good steward of it, I'll take it from you and give it to somebody else. We would not be the first church in history that God took his grace away from. With that responsibility of the grace, of, with the with the privilege of the grace of God comes a responsibility to steward it. Yes, the reason we work hard, the reason we want to give more than anybody else, the reason we go to farther places in the world than anybody else is because we believe that this gospel we've been given is precious. And we're trying to respond in a way that is worthy of it. This is why he saved us. I think about that in my family. I mean, my, it would, I wouldn't be the first family line that God had taken away his grace from. If I don't respond the right way to the gospel, if I don't teach my kids to respond to the gospel, if they don't steward the gospel, is it possible that from the, the Greer family line we'd have in one generation, God say, well, they're not going to be good stewards of it. I'll take it from them and I'll put it on somebody else. God will keep his promise to build his church, but there's no guarantee that us and our descendants will be the ones he does it through. Uh, the denomination we're a part of, that's another question. God has blessed the Southern Baptist Convention immensely. It's the largest mobilized mission force in history, planting more churches around the world. But that's no guarantee that God's going to keep his hand on us if we don't respond in the right way to how his spirit is moving in us and if we're not good stewards of the gospel. Our country, here in our country, we have enjoyed access to the gospel like no people in history. There is no guarantee that that will continue. That if the churches in this country are not responsible with what God has given them in the gospel, then there's nothing to say God might not take it from us and to say, yeah, the new center is not going to be here. The new center is going to be down somewhere in South America and Africa, which, by the way, is already beginning to happen as believers there begin to steward the gospel in ways that American Christians have just grown comfortable and complacent with. Yo, look, God's promises are guaranteed, and he is going to do mighty things in the world, but we must never be so presumptuous as to think that God can only do mighty things through us because we are his people. He can raise up children of Abraham from the stones. If we do not walk forward in humility, in grateful response, in a worthy way to the grace that is given to us, then he will pour out his powerful spirit somewhere else. So here's the two questions I have for you, two different groups of people. Number one, have you ever received him? Do you recognize yourself in this story? That God has sent you messenger after messenger, and he's trying to wake you up this weekend. He's trying to get your attention. And maybe you just need to submit and surrender and say, I'm tired of running. If God gave his son for you and you ignore his son, what else would he do? What el how else could he get your attention? Maybe that's one way you need to respond. Or maybe you're a believer and you just need to consider, am I walking in a way that is worthy of the grace that I have been given? Why don't you bow your heads, if you would, at all of our campuses, bow your heads with me for just a minute here. And as our worship teams are getting into place and as our instrumentalists begin to play. Let me just ask you to consider that. First of all, have you ever responded to Jesus and received him as Savior? 
All five of these parables we've looked at have had this point. Almost all of Jesus' parables were evangelistic. That's the word we mean that he is trying to seek you to get you to come to faith in him. Maybe here in this last one, you're, you're tired of fighting. You say, I've been here three or four of the last five weeks, and I'm, I know that, that, that he's calling me to cross this line of faith and to receive him, and I'm, I'm tired of fighting. I surrender right here, right now. Say it to him in your own words. I, I, I surrender to you, and I receive you as my Savior. If you're a believer, maybe you just think now about the response of your heart toward the grace of God, and are you responding in a way that is worthy? And they would say, God, I want me and my family line and the church I'm a part of and the movement I'm a part of to respond with full hearts, open pockets, fervent to go in a way that befits the grace, the preciousness of the grace we've received. Father, I pray. I pray, God, for our church. I pray, first of all, for people who have never crossed that line of faith that they would not walk out of here today, this weekend, without heeding the warning that is given to them, to the prophets, through things in their life, and most of all, through Jesus is coming to earth. God, I pray for our church. God, enable us by the Spirit to respond with full hearts and open pocketbooks and open wallets and open calendars to the grace and make us worthy of this grace, this precious grace we've been given. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.